0: kindly remain standing if you are comfortably able as we honor God's word today it comes to us from Romans chapter 7 I'll begin at verse 14 Paul said for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold into slavery under sin I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate now if I do what I do not want I agree that the law is good But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I did forget one important announcement today. Um, we are taking communion today. So after communion, you'll have a little cup. Um, take that cup with you on your way out. Keep that. Take it with you. You can take it home. You could use it as a souvenir. <laughs> or you can deposit it in one of the trash bins outside on your way out. So we, uh, we have close services. We, s- we got to get everybody in and out. <laughs> is that what I'm saying? As we say you don't have to you don't have to go home but you can't stay here. Is that maybe what we're saying? <laughs> no, we want fellowship on the patio is what we want. That's what we want, Kirk. I'm better I better pray. <laughs> Father, what a sacred privilege it is to hear your words to us we ask humbly that your spirit would be the one who speaks today to our hearts, to our minds, that we might be receptive and allow you to be our teacher. Amen. In Romans 7, text that I just read, Paul talks about his own personal struggle with sin. He says that he knows what is right, he understands the rules, He understands what God wants. He understands the law. But he finds himself doing what is wrong against the law. He says he does not do the good he wants to do. Instead, he does the evil he does not want to do. Paul is talking about a very personal struggle in his his mind and in his heart and in his flesh. And I think it's something that all of us who are Christians, all of us who are believers in Jesus can relate to. Even though we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we still struggle with sin in our lives. This is a one of the more controversial passages in the New Testament. What I mean by controversial is highly debated passages. Um, It has been debated throughout the centuries. What is Paul talking about here? Because if you were here with us last week, you heard Pastor Kirk give a great sermon and talk about Paul said, we are dead to sin. He talked about how we have the spirit to guide us now. We, should we go on sinning? By no means. We, are, we, were, we died with Christ. We are dead to sin. And then right away in chapter 7, Paul's saying, I don't know. I keep sinning. I mean, what is going on here? There's a lot of controversy. What, what could Paul possibly mean? Because he, he said one thing in chapter 6, and now in chapter 7, he's saying another thing. What is this? Some thinkers of the church, great thinkers, Aquinas, great Catholic thinker, said what Paul is doing here, he couldn't understand this dichotomy between these two chapters. What Aquinas said was, actually what Paul is talking about here is his life before he became a Christian. Before I became a Christian, I had this struggle. I had heard about the law, I knew some things inside of me that that were pushing me, but, but I had that constant struggle, but then I became a Christian and now I'm dead to that. Uh, Wesley, these are some big thinkers in the church. They've struggled with this. and They're trying to make sense of what is going on. Is Paul saying two different things? Um, but in our Reformed tradition, and I think a correct interpretation of this text, has always rejected that. Calvin, John Calvin said that the very fact that Paul is wrestling with his sin, the very fact that he's having this d- argument with himself... An argument presented to us is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in his life. It's evidence because one of the jobs, the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is to say, by the way, that's sin. Steve, by the way, you know, that's sin. (laughs) And it points it, it convicts us of our sin. The Spirit does several things, but that's one of the main things. And so what Calvin said is Paul is just simply saying, I'm convicted. God's working on me. I still have sin. I still struggle. It's it's a daily thing. I know we should be dead to sin. I know we shouldn't go on sinning, but I still struggle. And I think this is really important text. I think it's an incredibly important text. I think Paul, in a moment of sheer vulnerability, as a good pastor should on occasion, is saying, let me tell you about my struggle. Let me tell you about the stuff that I don't really, I'm embarrassed about. (coughs) That I hate to admit, but he's opening himself up and saying, this is me. I do things that I wish I didn't do. I sin. I don't think we should be too surprised by this. In fact, I don't think this should be a controversial passage. C.S. Lewis, after he became a Christian, wrote, soon after he became a Christian, wrote a, a really wonderful little book called The Problem of Pain. And in that book, he tackles a huge topic, suffering and pain. Why why do we go through it? Why do you and I experience suffering and pain? And in that book, Lewis offers a very kind of, um, we might say, clinical description of why there's pain in the world. At one point in that book, he says, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's kind of a big statement. Why do we have pain? God wants to wake us up shake us up, and make us understand some things and learn some things. You know, that book, I think, is a really important book, and it's true. But, you know, Lewis wrote another book about 25 years later, when his wife died, and he talked about pain that had come into his life. It wasn't this objective, this is a theological understanding. Suddenly now Lewis is writing about But when it comes to me, let me tell you. And in that book, he wrestles and says, at one point, he says, meanwhile, where's God? When you need him the most, where is he? He feels absent. This is the same author. (coughs) On the one hand, he says, this God pain is important. It's God's megaphone. And then when it comes and it hits home with him, it's what's God doing? Why is he doing this? I don't like this. This is hard. This is the same author. I don't think we should be surprised by that. There's an outside reality and an internal experience that we all go through. As a pastor, I can stand up here and say, we should be dead to sin, don't sin. But I know my own life. (laughs) And I know the struggles I have. And I know the temptations. And every single day we go through this. I think this is one of the most encouraging chapters in all of the Bible. I really do. should be one of our favorites, I think. Paul reminds us I think in in this chapter he reminds us of it reminds me of the the classic book I read many years ago by Robert Louis Stevenson. You remember this book, Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. They say a definition of a classic book is one that everybody's heard of but nobody's read, right? <laughs> well, this one is worth reading and believe it or not, Stevenson was raised in a very embarrassing to say, but a very strict Presbyterian home that told him every day that you're falling short you're not living up to the rules and pounded it into him and he he was raised with this fear of not doing right and this internal struggle about good versus evil and why can't I do the good things that I want to do and he wrote this book and in the story Dr. Jekyll a fine upstanding citizen he's frustrated because it seems inside him is a bad part and a good part. And the bad part of him is always holding the good part of him back. He calls himself an incongruous compound. I love that phrase. He's an incongruous compound of good and bad mixed together. So Dr. Jekyll, who's uh, being a chemist, develops this potion that separates those two parts, the good and the bad, so that only the, the good part only comes out by day and the bad part only comes out at night. Now, the good guy is Dr. Jekyll, and the bad guy is Mr. Hyde. The very word Hyde is is symbolic. He's hiding that self. It's hidden. It's hideous. That's where we get that from. So he's got only good and only bad operating all by themselves. He separated them. The problem was that the evil part of Dr. Jekyll was far more evil than he had imagined. Mr. Hyde's every thought was centered on himself. He's spiteful. He's angry, vengeful, petty. He steals, he lies, he manipulates, he even murders. Dr. Jekyll said, I was tenfold more wicked than I ever thought. And the author, Stevenson, speaking through Dr. Jekyll, explains, I discovered through this process that man is not truly one, but two. And it wasn't that I was a hypocrite. Both sides of me were completely sincere. That explanation might resonate with a lot of us. Many of us feel like we are an incongruous compound of completely opposite people. Can you relate to this? I know I can. There's a part of me that wakes up in the morning and goes, today, I'm going to do the right thing. Today, I'm going to hold my tongue. Today, I'm going to try and be affirming and not discouraging Today, I can go, the list can go on and on and on. And then by about 9 a.m., I'm like, what have I done? Why? And then it spirals down. And then there's this constant struggle. And why is this? And Paul is talking about this struggle, but he's, he's talking about it before he met Jesus. But he's also talking about that struggle after he met Jesus. Now, I I think most of us, I'm not going to do a show of hands, but I think a lot of us view life kind of like a bell curve, this bell curve, okay? And over here are the saints, the really, really good people. You might have your own list, but boy, I look at them and I go, they are incredible, these saints. And over here, there's some really, really bad people. Uh, We also could have a ready list for who they are. And then somehow in the middle, we find ourselves. Because we're certainly not here. We know that. I don't think any of us would say, I'm a saint. We don't, but none of us would say, I'm also on the evil side of humanity. And then we're somewhere here. And basically good, we're kind of here. There might be shades of, it, but we all live kind of here. We all live there. And, then, and if people shade to one side of the bell curve, it's probably because bad things happen to them. And that's unfair. Maybe some really hard things came into their life, but that's why they do what they do. But we kind of lump everybody into this bell curve. Here's the problem with our text. Paul puts himself over here. That throws us off. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Whoa, time out. Paul, the apostle, the saint. If if Paul is over here, (laughs) do you see the struggle. This is tough. If Paul says, let me tell you who I am, he uses the word evil. I'm over here. Then I got a big problem. Because I've been looking at this bell curve and taking some comfort. Well, I'm kind of in here, right? But if Paul puts himself here, then I have to deal with this. Then I really do have a struggle. And it should scare us. And I think that's why this passage scares some people. It really does, because it shatters that bell curve. By the way, the bell curve is wrong all the time. And it's not helpful at all. In fact, it's destructive. It hurts us. Paul is not putting himself on the bell curve over here in comparison to everyone else. Because that's what we do, right? Where am I in comparison to everyone else? That's the constant thought. If I just could be okay and stay in that middle and not over here. Paul's not doing that. Paul is saying, not in comparison to other people, but in light of who God is, I'm here. God is so holy and good and generous and wonderful. Everything about God is self giving to the other, is sacrificial. God's very nature is give away. And Paul says, when I look at my life in comparison, I'm a mess. He's so holy and perfect and good and generous and wonderful. And I have to be down here in comparison. That's what Paul's saying here. I struggle. God doesn't. I'm selfish. God isn't. You see, if we live in the bell curve, we're constantly going to want to be looking for approval from other people. That's how we stay in the middle. And we compare ourselves. and, And we all need approval constantly right? We all need to be approved. But what happens if I start feeling like, hey, I'm doing pretty good on this law thing. I'm not like them. What comes in? Pride. Pride's not a good thing. And you see the cycle? As soon as I think, well, I'm, at least I'm not, uh, that's bad. And then it starts going down. And then the other thing that happens is maybe I don't have pride and I, then I have, I can't believe that I keep being over here. Then we have shame. Pride and shame are are deadly, and they're dangerous to us. I wake up every day and I go, "Why am I the way that I am?" Shame does this terrible thing to us. Shame tells us that tells you that your past is much worse than it was. Oh, what an ugly voice it is! It makes you look back at what you, your past and say, "Oh, you know, you were really terrible." The other thing that shame does is it takes away hope for your future. You're never going to be the good person you think you can be. It's a double whammy. It's awful. And Paul is talking about this. And so Paul gets rid of the bell curve. He discovered how to get rid of pride, and he discovered to get rid of shame. And it was because of the work of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller puts it this way, I'll put up on our screen. Keller says, everyone has a war within themselves. We all want to live according to a high moral code, but none of us can meet the demands of our moral code. The reason for this is that inside of ourselves, there is a desire for evil as well as a desire for good. Therefore, none of us can win the battle. See, none of us can make the bell curve change. Let's forget about that. It's just not going to happen. But the battle changes when we become a Christian. The deepest parts of ourselves change so that for the first time, our most inner being delights in the law of God. We move from a battle we cannot win to a battle we cannot lose. You see, in Jesus Christ, we're going to win the battle. His grace is going to cover and win. Suddenly, the battle changes dramatically. Suddenly, our motivation changes. I'm not doing good, and I'm not keeping the law in order to be on a different place on the bell curve. I'm doing it because I cannot believe how much God loves me. I can't believe that he took away all my shame. I don't have to have pride because I, don't, I can't have any. I don't do any good. But he does good for me. You know, the, there's a... When the Pearl Harbor happened, um, there's a famous quote from Winston Churchill... Um he, he called FDR and he, the whole war he knew was changed, World War II. And he wrote, no American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing the U.S. was on our side was the greatest joy to me. Think about that. He said, I, I mean, I discovered that, that the U.S. was now in the war and that became a source of great joy for me to discover this. England would live. Britain would live. The rest of the war was simply proper application of overwhelming force. I went to bed, slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. It's a great definition of who we are, friends. You want to know what the overwhelming force is that comes in on our side? Overwhelming force that is marching behind us, that is coming and saying, We're going to do this, we're going to win grace forgiveness it's overwhelming it's overwhelming and and our response sleep well be thankful sleep the sleep of the saved god's grace is powerful and that's us we go to bed in awe and so thankful that god and jesus christ has done what we could not do for ourselves through his grace we win the battle I wake up in the morning and I say, Lord, I'm going to do this today and I'm going to I'm going to win and I'm going to do this and make sure not to do this and this and this and this. And on my good days, I'm doing that out of a motivation because I just want to be with God and I want to be walking with his Holy Spirit. And I'm so thankful for what he's done. But also on those good days, I go to bed and I say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm in awe at how good you are. John Newton wrote a letter when he was 83 years old. And he was writing to a fellow pastor, and he confessed that he had always assumed after walking with God for 40 or 50 years that he would have made more progress in his Christian life. That he would have, he wondered why at 83, his temptations of the flesh, he said, were still as strong as they were when he was a young man. I thought I'd be better by now. (laughs) I thought by eighty-three years I would have had this figured out, he said. And he came to this conclusion. We think growing in grace means getting to a place where we don't need grace anymore. <laughs> but growing in grace often means growing in our awareness of our need for grace. Do you see that difference? See how important that is? He's absolutely right. You know John Newton, he wrote the best of all hymns, right? Amazing grace. You know that first stanza, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. i blind, but now I see. That's conversion. That's what it means. But did you know that the second stanza is the best one in the whole song? It's Romans 7. The second stanza. Remember how that goes? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. What does that mean? It's odd. Grace taught my heart to fear. I thought grace was just make me feel better. Grace taught my heart to fear. What is John Newton saying? I learned through grace how good God is, how holy, how wonderful. And the result was, in my heart, I had awe and reverence. And my immediate response to that is, that's not me. I'm not God. Only he is good, not me. It teaches us how to have holy reverence and awe for God, keep him in his proper place, and it leaves no room for pride. But then he says, and grace my fears relieved. Grace does both things. It teaches us how good and holy God is. But it also comforts us and reminds us of what his care is like for each and every one of us. It's such a gift. In fact, it is a gift for the Holy Spirit to remind you of your sin and my sin. That is a great gift when we're reminded of it. Because the only place we can go for help is to fall down on our knees in awe and reverence and say, Lord, pick me up, help me. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Like Paul, I think a lot of us arrived this morning carrying a lot of baggage from the struggle. We've spent too much time this past week embarrassed by our sin. A lot of us arrived this morning in our minds saying, I do the things I shouldn't do. The past is haunting. The future without, is without hope because we cling to shame instead of Christ. But Listen to the way Paul ends this section. What a wretched man that I am. Who's going to rescue me from this cycle, this, this body that is subject to, to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So friends, here's what I want us to do this week. I'm going to give us a little homework to end. I want you this week to maybe two or three times sit in a chair in your home and open up the Bible to maybe one of your favorite gospel stories and just read it. Open it up to the woman at the well and listen to the words that Jesus speaks to this woman. Read it. And then I want you to put yourself into the story and allow Jesus to speak tenderly to you the way he spoke to her. Or maybe read the scene where Peter is on the beach and Jesus is serving breakfast and allow Jesus to say, do you love me? I want you to feed my sheep. Here's some fish. Here's some bread. I want you to have breakfast with me. Or maybe it's the story of Mary at the tomb and hear Jesus say to you your name in a tender way. Or maybe you're in the boat. You're afraid of your, what's happening right now. And here Jesus, speak to you personally and say, "Calm. let's calm this storm. Or maybe read this passage of the upper room. And when Jesus is saying, take and eat, this is my body. Put yourself there. Put yourself there. I know we're battered by pride and shame. But what we really need is to Jesus to say, take and eat. This is for you. My grace is enough for you. We gather at this table this morning and we remember. We remember that this is our Lord's feast and this is the place where Jesus's grace is shown more than any other place. This is where he gave. Where he gave his life for us, for each and every one of us. As we begin, let's join in our communion liturgy. Is it fitting and right that we come to this table? Yes, it is fitting and right, because Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak, not for the righteous, but for sinners, not for the self-sufficient, but for those who knew they need rescue. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares to all who are weak and frail and desire strength to all who sin and need a Savior. Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into family, and reserves a place at his table. For he he is the mighty mighty friend friend of sinners, sinners, the the ally of of his enemies, enemies, and the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left.